Good morning, everybody. My name is Andrew. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here, um, one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, I'm uh, really excited to be with you today for what is, uh, we've been going through this series in the book of James. Uh, and for those of you who've been with us from the beginning, I've heard so much great feedback and so many good stories. Not like the sermons have been great or the Lent music stuff has been great. It's actually been just the conviction. Like, man, we were driving home and we had this epic conversation. And this has really triggered me like to rearrange how I think about A, B, and C. Um, and what's been really fascinating and fun for me uh, has been uh, folks that are a part, I don't know if you've noticed this or realized this, sometimes you, you feel it like in our music time. There's a lot of folks here who aren't really like sold out on this whole Jesus thing. There's folks here who are exploring, um, sometimes we call them our, our like meanderers. They're just sort of like they're here, they're, they're figuring it out, they're trying to make sense of what, what to believe about who God is and, and how, how that makes any sense in the 21st century and how, questions about the Bible and truth and, and, and the pain in the world and all these things. And it's funny, from, from some of my friends who have been coming who are in that boat, they found it really fascinating. And, and I want to highlight this because of this week. Um, they found it fascinating that uh, kind of feeling like they're listening in on an internal conversation. Like it's really, really good that you Christians actually don't like the hypocrisy that so many others feel like uh, you guys are all about. Like, like, oh wow, it's really good that you're having a conversation. I can't believe there's actually a book in the Bible that calls out the very thing that so many in our world get frustrated at Christians about. You following me? Like, oh, man, it's so good that you guys have a little hypocrisy check between what you believe and how you actually live. Because it's really frustrating sometimes on the outside. And that's sort of the, the general feel that I've gotten from a number of folks. So today in particular, we're going to talk about the difference between true faith and false faith. What is saving faith that James is talking about and what is faith that really is dead? And how do we even understand that? Why is that so critical? So for those of you who are here... Uh, and you are like almost leaning towards running out the door because you're having traditional flashbacks or you're not quite sure what you walked into and the giant Nicolas Cage Jesus is frightening you. For some, they find it very comforting, and but others, it's difficult. They, um, <laughs> uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to, to just have that posture, like you're listening in to a conversation, and hopefully this will be really relevant for you just in general, but today in particular to, to, to listen in to, wow, these Christians are serious, hopefully this comes across, are, are serious about um, making sure that their, their actions and their beliefs uh, have alignment, and that when that's not aligning, um, they're being critical of that, and that what's driving them to have those things align isn't this like white knuckling. I'm just going to pull it together and harness my strength to to try to be a more like good Christian or nice moral person. That it's actually coming off of an understanding of God's love, mercy, and grace, not out of just sheer willpower. So I'm really excited to preach today, and I was so excited to preach today that I did that whole introduction. And I realized I forgot to say something. So hold that, and then I'll be back up for a second. I really want to highlight this. Um, man, I should just preach, huh? No, I got to highlight this. So on Thursday, uh, we did this event called Q Commons. Anybody here who came to Q Commons? Bunch of you? Yeah. It, um, 
I don't know how you felt about it. I was really, really encouraged for the most part uh, of what happened of these. So for those of you who weren't there, we had national speakers who were beamed in. Malcolm Gladwell, kind of a big deal. Soledad O'Brien and Mark Burnett, the guy who created uh, The Voice and Shark Tank. And he was just strange. But um, genuine man. So he's actually a Christian, the guy who's created all these programs. Um, and, uh, and so they shared, and then we had local speakers share. And so the local speakers uh, were uh, just kind of talked about how do we advance the common good on a local level? What does that look like? And so let me just show you a couple pictures. You can just cycle through them, Heather. Uh, this was, we, we took out all the pews and had like seats up front. You can keep going. Uh, and just we're able to share a little bit. There's a few of our speakers. We're able to share like how do we um, care for our city? Regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, a good 30% of the folks that were there that I knew of weren't followers of Jesus who were in the room, uh, excited that a church was hosting a conversation about advancing the good in our city. Uh, these are the owners of the shop who are there. Um, keep going. There's Malcolm Gladwell. And, um, and then this guy, you can pause here. Nick Cole. Everyone knows Nicholas Cole. Yeah, so he was one of the speakers. Um, and uh, it was absolutely tear-jerkingly beautiful. It was, I, I, it was just, I can't wait. Hopefully the video came out all right. We're going to post it up for you, and he'll get a chance to share it again. But just just a beautiful talk. And I was, uh, I'm not trying to put just Nick on blast right now. I was so proud of Nick. I was so proud of, like, our whole team that came together uh, and just put this event on where there were a number of folks, and some of them are actually here, who are um, have a real aversion, actually, to Christianity, really struggle with anything that, that smells of organized religion. Um, we're able to be a part and, and feel safe and feel like they can explore these ideas that are, yes, coming from a Christian perspective, but that advance the common good in our city across the board. So um, can we just, if you are involved in greeting or setting up or speaking or anything at Q, would you stand? I know this is really awkward. Can you stand? Can we just give them a round of applause? Yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, there are a lot of people who help in our church all the time. Uh, and I don't mean to just single out special events, but man, it was just, so many people were so blessed by the atmosphere that was created. So thank you so much for doing that. There's one last picture of Nick. Oh, it was good. He nailed it right on time. That 39 seconds swept in. It was wonderful. Anyway, back to the, the whole Jesus talk thing. Um... Also, I wanted to point out, have any of you had friends that have traveled to warm places uh, over the last month or so? Anybody have a couple friends? Yeah. Yeah, how frustrating has that been? My buddy, my buddy Brad, some of you know, has been posting Instagrams like daily just out on the beach. And, and can you stand real quick, Brad? This is what he comes back dressed as. He's got his like shell necklace still on. Looks like, like he's been like cast away on an island. I sit back down. So dead arms are totally welcome. Brad's just accepting punches to the whatever. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's good to be with you. Uh, I, don't, I can get back to where I was before, but anyway, today, true faith, true faith, true faith, got it, versus false faith. This is what James is talking about. So this passage that that Adam just read, we're going to go back to and explore. So if you want to open your Bibles to James 2. Uh, and I want to lead uh, with this quote. Uh, because what James, what we've seen so far, 
is this writer. This guy is writing to this early church, very Jewish. Uh, as far as we know, as is Jesus' brother, all signs point to this on a number of levels, uh, historical uh, and linguistic sort of things. And what he's emphasizing makes sense. That This is the James. James was a very common name. Um, that this was Jesus' brother. And, and so he's really um, obsessed, focused on this idea of deception. Right? We've hit this in one way or another over the last couple weeks. Whether it comes to issues of favoritism, it comes to issues of how we look at our trials in our life. Are you being deceived? Are you looking at yourself in a mirror and forgetting what you're like? You're forgetting who God says that you are. You say you believe all these things. This is what your social media feed looks like in terms of what you value and who you are. But when you, we actually meet you, there's a huge disconnect. That's why we've been using this phrase, bridging the gap between what we know and how we live. So deception... This word deception is a deceitful word. It's, it's a tricky word. Because most of us, me included, we read James and we go, oh, it's a good thing I'm not deceived. The problem with deception is what? You don't know you're being deceived. That's the whole thing. Deception is that you don't know it. Right? Deception is actually you can't call it out. This isn't like, oh, I'm aware of this inconsistency. I'm aware of this hypocrisy. I'm aware of this brokenness. No, what does deception say? Deception says you actually have no idea. Like you don't, as soon as you know, you're not being deceived anymore. And so it's really important that when we look at this passage and when we approach this text, any text in the scripture, but specifically what James is getting at is that we have an open mind to how God might convict now, I want to read this quote. Sadly, I don't have uh, slides up on the screen. If you can track with me, this is uh, from a book called Dismissing Jesus, which I highly recommend um, people pick up. And he just has this brutal quote that sets up where we're going around this issue of how we as a church have the propensity so often to actually miss it. In fact, our very gatherings, in fact, not just those other gatherings at that other church across the city, like, us here, sanctuary, let's own our part in this. We can fall into this trap so easily, and we have. The dominant form of Christian living in the West is one designed to shield us from Jesus' explicit priorities. Imagine you were one of the people Isaiah spoke to, the ones who sacrificed diligently and properly. You appeared before the Lord regularly. You attended worship meetings and festivals. You offered many prayers. And you might even have been one of the few who are disciplined enough to fast regularly. You were a good Christian. That's exactly the sort of person who was and is most likely to be blind, to be deceived. We are those who so often totally miss what God has called his people to do. Can we imagine being so sincere and well-meaning and diligent and yet hear God say to us, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. It's from Isaiah 1. I have had enough. Rather, we tend to assume, like God would never say that about one of us. Never. We tend to assume that our mere middle-class niceness and decency protects us from blindness. But it's that decency that makes us the most likely to be blind. Ooh. 
I think the way our Christian culture so often works is that we think niceness. I have no big sins. I have not done that thing, that big thing out there, and thus I'm somehow okay. God and I are good. I'm, 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 I have real faith in Jesus. And this is a passage not about how like we're rescued from sin. This isn't a question about grace and God's grace and he loves you exactly where you're at. It's all this, James hasn't all of a sudden invalidated this. This passage is about dead faith or false faith versus true faith. So I want to lay these two out. What does a life of true faith look like? And I think the, the answer to that question will be surprising for many of us. So one, false faith. First, false faith in this passage uh, talks about empty confession. So faith that's oriented around the words that we say. In verse 14, if you want to turn with me. Can I get a little more of my mic in the monitor? That'd be great. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he goes in to explaining. So it's if your understanding of the words and your theology, if your acknowledgement of certain truths, yep, God is there, I believe, like what is our like general creedal statements? Like if you're, even if you're brand new right to church, you have certain things, you should believe like Jesus. Okay, believe that Jesus was a guy. I believe that Jesus actually was, re- I believe that Jesus like, okay, now there's this cross thing. So that sounds like amazing, like it's kind of beautiful. Jesus sacrificed, somehow God sacrificed himself. And it's this ultimate act of love. And Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, that's a stretch, but I can have faith in that. It seems pretty crazy. God raised from the dead, but I want to go with that. You know, and some basic ideas. Okay, the Bible, like it's a good book, solid book, word of God. Like like some, some gauge. We believe, we cognitively assent. I use that phrase often. Like I, I believe mentally that those things are true. James is saying if you have empty confession, you don't have true faith. If you acknowledge certain th- truths, and it doesn't generate anything in your life, it's not saving faith. That's one, empty confession. Two, you can think that salvation is about our worldview. Like if you think the right things and agree with it, you are saved. So I have a proper worldview. It's not just words, I believe this, but I kind of have a general understanding. I can kind of put things in a, in a relative box. I show up to church, I've, I've swallowed sort of what... You know, if you're from an evangelical tradition or a Catholic tradition or Episcopal, I believe these, this is kind of how it basically goes. And this is my worldview. I see the world through this lens. It's a beautiful thing. But James is saying that's not enough. That's not faith that is saving in any way. It's not faith that actually trickles down into the everyday of life. And, and another one would be an emotional resonance. And that's kind of what happens for, for me. And this in and of itself is a good thing. So... Uh, today I was uh, I get to play with the worship team. Sometimes I'm over here playing bass, um, and before those first couple songs that we did, sorry we had to stand so long, but man, I just I like lost myself for a moment because we just kept singing the same thing over and over, and I, sometimes I like chafe against that, and sometimes it's like what I need to break down the walls that like are kind of up. I had a stressful morning of running around, and making sure things are going all right, making sure I remember my sermon enough, and. 
And so I'm over here, and, and Jess just starts singing, like, set a fire in my soul. And, and the first four times, I was like, okay, I'm just concentrating on the chords. And then all of a sudden, I just, like, I kind of had this emotional resonance, right? You know what I'm talking about. This all of a sudden, like, I, I not only feel God, I, I feel deeply connected. Uh, all of a sudden, these words went from just something we're reading off a sheet, and it became, uh, I can't explain it, right? It kind of touches my heart. It touches me deeply in a way, and it begins to become real. It resonates. But just because you have resonance, and some of you, this is your struggle, it does not mean you have saving faith. All right, these are like conference junkies, or they go to every service they can go to. Right? And if the lights are just right and the synthesizer pad is like just tuned correctly, or for our, my high church brothers and sisters, it's, it's the bells and the smells and the, the stained glass, and it's just that right, quiet moment. And then in that moment, I'm somehow emotionally resonant with God. And the issue here, again, is this false faith. He's saying none of these things are, are enough. They can be fine in and of themselves. It's good that you believe. It's good that you have a worldview. It's good that you can articulate verbally some things. But this is not the kind of faith that is saving, life-giving faith. Um, one, one way to get at this, a, a great explanation I heard is auditing. Has anyone ever audited a class before? Anyone know what auditing is? It's the most amazing thing, at least for people like me. I'm like a, a, a I'm a pretty like self-driven learner. I love to read. I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to that kind of stuff. I could sit in all day, like put jazz on, pour a little bit of whiskey, and then lay back and read. That could be my entire day. It is a temptation for me to live in my head. I love it. I just love to read. And, and auditing is I get to have the whole class experience. So I get to go, I get to listen to a brilliant professor, I get to interact with classmates, I get the whole experience, but I'm not accountable. I don't have to write a paper. It's, it's brilliant. I don't, have to write a, I don't have to do anything. I just get to show up and enjoy at my own pace and leisure the wonderful world of learning. And I am in no way held accountable to regurgitate the information or prove to someone that I'm processing well or prove to anyone that I'm learning. This is what auditing is. I've done this three times. Two of them were accidental because I just didn't do any of the work and I switched it so I didn't get a bad GPA. <laughs> you can take the class or you can show up and audit. Mental stimulation, on-campus learning, all that. I think sometimes we end up auditing our faith. We hang around, we take in content, we feel really good, but we are never actually in the game. We're never actually accountable for what's happening. We are simply performing an unbelievably fun and beautiful and interesting uh, exercise in our heads. And there is no auditing the kingdom of God. There is no auditing the way of Jesus. And we do this. I want to go back to this author, Douglas Jones, who kind of cap, um, encapsulates this. Almost every aspect of modern Christianity assumes that the faith is first and foremost a set of ideas to be believed. Before, right? We do this all the time. I want, I want my friend to come to know Jesus, all right? I believe this is the best possible way to live. I believe in the power of, of the resurrection. I believe in new life. My identity can be grounded in God, right? Everybody knows that there's something more beyond just their five senses. There are things that this science can't just fully answer. There's something pulling at me. There's something that's driven the most powerful and beautiful acts in this world have been tethered to Jesus. I just want to tell people. And what we do is then we tell them a set of ideas, right? We perform really uh, 
hopefully with well-meaning, great arguments to get them to believe some things that exist, and then they were a Christian, and that becomes it because they just cognitively ascend. That it's first and foremost a set of ideas to be believed. That's it. Sure, we encourage some marginal action on the side, but that's not truly important, not central. Our worship is primarily explaining and singing ideas. Our schools focus on transferring ideas. Our evangelism spreads ideas. Our apologetic tries to persuade others of ideas. Community means chatting with people who share our ideas. And our entry into heaven requires holding the right ideas in our heads. In centuries past, this strange, strange obsession with ideas only simply went by the name of Gnosticism, the ancient heresy that ideas and intellect are more important than bodies and people and actually doing something. We even have a safe, approved word to hide our new Gnosticism, which is worldview. Brutal. Read this book if you want to get seriously messed up dismissing Jesus. He's, he's, he's tapping into James, this author, and reminding us that so much of our life of faith has everything to do with simply ideas. We all hang out with people who think the same things, and we can subtly, without meaning, only just kind of have a marginal, yeah, be a nice person, mere middle-class niceness. We're all pretty reasonable, right? James, again, is looking at Jesus. He's looking at the Sermon on the Mount in particularly. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end, he doesn't refer to the one who heard the word and the one who didn't being the ones who are like faithful. Right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, James is say, Jesus is saying, it's not like, well, one person heard this good word of what life looks like, how we were created to live, and one person didn't. And that person who did then, you know, will live in the kingdom. No, he says they both heard the word and one actually stepped into it. One actually began to pursue it and did it. They both heard we, without meaning to, I humbly submit to you, can create environments where we think all you have to do is get people to hear something. Look, more theology and more ideas and more sermons doesn't necessarily make you more full of life. More content does not make you more godly. All they do is make you more accountable. It's all they do. My friend John said this. It's like you can take in all you want. That doesn't transform your heart necessarily. But what it definitely does is makes you more accountable to those new things you just learned. So the moral of the story is stop reading and you won't be held accountable for anything and you'll be fine. Just kidding. This, is, this, is, this should feel really challenging. As I went through this, I felt like a constant like punch to the gut. What good is it, James says? What good is it that you think a bunch of great stuff? That's cool you believe Jesus rose from the dead. But it's exercise. It's emotional like disconnect. It's, it's just trapped in your head. It has not transformed who you are. False faith has empty confession. Empty confession. And it, and it has also empty compassion. James illustrates this, his point, by comparing faith without works to words of compassion without corresponding acts of compassion. Right? He's saying this, I mean, this is kind of fitting. Dead faith can be characterized by false compassion. 
So you say you think all these things and what ends up coming out is a fake sort of compassion for other people. This is where I, I struggle sometimes with my own heart. If I'm entertained by all of the same things the world is, if you can't tell by the way that I'm consuming my entertainment and the things around me that there's any dis- disconnect or discernment about what is good, true, and beautiful and what is not, then, then there's a, a, a problem. I think um, we can often form, any, any, any of you form like really deep emotional connections with television characters? Yeah, or like TV shows, like you're just sort of like, oh my gosh, like I, I care a lot about this. All right, so a lot of times, um, we were talking about this the other day with my buddy Derek and my father-in-law is like the sports movies, like things like Hoosiers or stuff like that, like, you know, like you, you all of us, Rudy, you know, like all time has, anyone seen Rudy? Yeah, all time has stopped and you're like, Rudy, please do it. Like, like you're just hanging on in that moment. You know, or even like a really good, like Nicholas Sparks romantic comedy, right? Like some notebook type stuff. Like that moment of you're just hanging on. Like please will there be resolution and be a happy ending. It's amazing that so many people become emotionally involved in a movie, a play, or a popular song, or a TV program. Weeping over tragedies and becoming incensed with wrong, at wrongs and injustices and yet show no concern or compassion for the plight of a neighbor or an acquaintance who is in real need. In our artificial, self-centered world, fantasy becomes more meaningful than reality. Yeah, I'm just trying to just keep hitting you. It's like a boxer today. This stuff just wrecked me as I was going through it. Not only is it like an empty confession that's false faith, but an empty compassion. I can say I believe all these things and then get trapped up, for instance, in a television program or in entertainment. I can become so isolated that I don't even know my neighbors. That I care more about Rudy than I do about the fact that I actually know, for real, that like my neighbor two doors down just got into a tragic accident. So I spent most of my time just like doing this than actually engaging the real concerns around me. We can all of a sudden fall into this trap where there's a disconnect and it actually hurts our ability to be compassionate. Uh, I, I, some of you may have saw, I, I sent out through Instagram last night a picture of my daughter and I with the red X, the end it movement. Uh, I'm trying to get into it. It's a really beautiful thing around human uh, trafficking. Um, you can just look it up, enditmovement.com. Um, and I struggled, la- my brother actually last night reminded me that last year I, I really didn't want to do it, put the red X on my, on my hand. Um, because it, it I was so, I was so in that moment, like caught up and like there's this false sense of we're doing something. There's just, there's, I mean, awareness is important and all of that. But I know for me at the time I realized, wow, I have been doing such a poor job being compassionate to those that God's put in my life. And, and, and honestly, me, it costs me nothing to put a red X along with 16 other, you know, 1,600 other celebrities and people around the country who are doing the same thing. And it doesn't cost me. Sometimes there can be a disconnect between I say I believe this, but when you actually look at my life and you actually go through and you auto what's happening, there's actually a huge disconnect. Empty compassion is a challenge. Again, in this passage, this is where we read this in the text. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James tells us that this sort of faith cannot save us. If we're going to just 
we're going to study our faith. What is faith? Right? So what is faith then? If this is all false faith, before we talk about what's true faith, like what, what actually do we mean by faith? And so throughout Christian tradition, there's, there's four things. Get a little lecturish for a moment. Like here are four things that throughout any, if you look up any, like across the Christian spectrum, this is what faith then is. If this is all false faith, then what is just faith in and of itself? And then we can help, help us understand what true faith is. So one, knowledge. Faith is about knowledge, specifically about the true person of God. We have to actually understand who God is. We sometimes like to have this vague spirituality where we feel like we can extract our own meanings of God. Who is God, really? So knowledge is involved in true faith. Mental assent, like being able to say, yes, that's true. This has like come to my own heart. I see it. I agree with it. Now, these two things, like we said before, just knowledge and agreeing with that knowledge. Oftentimes when I look around church world and maybe where you've come up around, uh, around like Christianity or where you've touched it, we sometimes stop here. Like that's really all you need. You need to have a knowledge of God and then you need to believe this about God. What's the problem with that just stopping there? What's the problem? What kind of faith is that that James says? Look back in your text. What is, what is it? What, what, if you were to label that kind of faith... He actually labels that sort of faith in this passage. It's demonic faith. Right? It's kind of strong. But that's what he says. He says, even the demons believe that. So apparently we can't stop there because the great evil, the brokenness in the world, right, on some level, like anything evil like believes that. That's who God is. Yeah, I know that. And in fact, they even have a deeper resonance because they like feel like the reality of that's what good and true and beautiful and life is. I see that. I believe that it's real and it causes them to shudder, it says. Three then. So we've got to go further. So the third, if you again look up in any text, but what is faith according to the Christian tradition? Three would be a, a commitment of love. A response of the heart that challenges our affections and our behavior. So it's not just true, but it actually impacts me. And then fourth is a biblical sense of hope. So it produces, and this is the key one, risk and obedience. We actually know where this thing is going. The redemptive arc of the universe. We know that God is putting all things back together and we can join him in that. Living by faith fully involves radical obedience. You can have faith in your heart and live identically to everyone else. Have the same goals, the same desires. And that means, and we've talked about this, to no, like, to no end. If I'm a Christian, just the simple idea, simple and hard, I know, at the same time, but of resurrection, that there is new life, that God has inaugurated a new way to live and there is absolutely no reason in the entire world that any Christian should have any fear of death. It can hurt, we can mourn, we can struggle with the fact that there's still death in the world. God's completely honest about that. This isn't some weird utopian thing, but we cannot fear it. How could we fear it? When we know what hope looks like, when we know where this whole thing is going, where we know what Jesus is about. Right? Martyrdom is actually praise. When we did the 21 martyrs thing last week, it was like, this should give us hope and life. How many people will come to know Christ because of that moment? How many people will I mean, Dr. King, these are people martyred for, the, for following the way of the kingdom. 
We should have no fear. None. And yet, we so often, even that just one point of all the different things we should be informed by because of our understanding of who God is and who we are as deeply loved, we don't let it inform our regular actions. And so we end up living the same kinds of lives, totally in fear of aging, completely fearful of what the next step will be, full of anxiety about what's going to come tomorrow, so preoccupied with whether I'm going to be able to get a paycheck and have 2.5 kids and get married and... I mean, we get obsessed with this stuff, right? Even the Christian propensity, we should, like, singleness should be elevated in our community. Like, singleness is actually, like, one of the most beautiful things because you're not so preoccupied just with the family. You can actually serve God in really unique and different sorts of ways. But no, 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 we're in the West. Right? We're in America. You get married in America. Right? Or you push it off for a different way because you're just really, really selfish. <laughs> it's a whole other thing. I'm going to start preaching the wrong sermon in a second. People who have a different vision of eternity, a different vision of where this whole thing is going, it should compel us to obedience and following the way of Jesus. So this, when we outline those four points of faith, knowledge, we need to have an understanding of who God is, mental assent, yes, that's true. We can't stop there. There needs to be a response of our heart. We're actually responding to the love of God and to the grace of God. That God has saved us right where we are in all of our sin and all of our brokenness. We did nothing to earn our faith at all. We need to have that place of love and then a biblical sense of hope that propels us to obedience. So then what is true faith? What is true faith? It contains all these things. Our life needs to be defined by that obedience. It's not that I wish someone would do something about the poor and needy. We don't live with a sense of, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, and to be a Christian means I care about the poor. Man, I really wish someone would do something about those poor people. (laughs) No, it's that my life is an answer to those wishes day in and day out. Like my life is an answer. I don't wish anything. My life is the answer to to the aching that everybody feels, whether they're a Christian or not, that all things would be made new. That in my, in my home life with my children as I raise them, that in my job that seems like it has no grand purpose, this menial job, that I would be a force of love and ethics, that I would be praying for my coworkers, that I would be doing things with excellence and producing the sorts of things that will last forever, that I would be informed by God and allow this stuff to become flesh and blood in my life. So James gives biblical examples, and we need to... The, jump into these really briefly here. James gives two biblical examples. And I'll just touch on one today. Abraham. He talked about Abraham and Rahab. Abraham uh, says, was not our father, this is an example of true faith, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So Martin Luther read that phrase. For those of you who know your church history, he like freaked out. And again, this is not about like what saves you. This is about what it means to actually live in, a true, in, a, in, in, the, in the space of true faith. So we know a couple things about Abraham. If you've never read the Bible before, Abraham, big deal. Really big deal. He's like where all all thing kicks. Redemptive history starts with Abraham. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing. So God appears to him. God has a plan for him. He calls him out. He says, Abraham, where are we going? God's like, trust me. 
Right? When it says he left his household, that's a very Jewish way of saying he left his entire way of living and thinking, an entire system, and he steps out of it. All of his destiny then gets wound up in his son, Isaac. And then God has this really like confusing and fascinating thing that everyone from Kierkegaard to Kant, Immanuel Kant have like wrestled with. Is then he, God goes, um, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham trusts and believes. Abraham doesn't talk himself out of it. Abraham doesn't go, well, God, I know you're not like the pagan gods, so you're probably just critiquing, you know, the modern, like, pagan, like, God system. I know you would never ask me to sacrifice a kid. In fact, you talked about this in your law. So, you know, I'm just going to assume that I'm either hearing this wrong or this is just, like, a way that you're trying to test my... Like, he doesn't rationalize his way out like many, like, of you and I do. He simply believes. In fact, it says in Hebrews that he just believed that, well, God, maybe I am supposed to do it, and then God would raise him from the dead, and that'll be like twice as awesome. Doubly awesome. So this is literally the equivalent of like you getting a word, God being like, go sacrifice your kid. How immoral and broken is that? Now, there's a lot going on here um, that is actually really stunning and beautiful and a huge shift in thinking and incredibly progressive when we look at history, but I don't have time to get into that. But it is important to note that for Abraham, he doesn't know that. And he is saying, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. And we see something similar with Rahab in this next section. And so what's very, very, very important for us then is that biblical faith, like Abraham in this example, is obedience based on what we do know, not passivity based on what we don't know. I'm going to say that again. Faith then, true, life-giving biblical faith is obedience based on what we do know and not passivity based on what we don't know. Some of you know very little. I wish I had time to get in the story about Rahab. She knows very little about the Christian faith and she just follows. Abraham knows very little about where this whole thing is going and he trusts God's actions in this. He begins to trust the little bit that I know is that this is a God of love. This God has called me to be a blessing. That This God is strong and beautiful and powerful and life-giving. I've learned some things. I've picked some things up. I've gotten this nudge. I'm going to actually be someone of faithful obedience and going to step out. I'm not going to live comfortably. It's not passivity, being passive based on the little bit that I, I do know or whatever I know. I, I get a word from God regularly, an audible word Andrew, how many more books do you need to read before you live out the basic teachings of the Sermon on the Mount? Like, seriously, I could sit here and talk to you. I preached this, what, a three-month series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I felt that was too quick. I can go so deep. Like, we could sit down and go through the Greek and have such a fun time. I would have a fun time. You'd be bored out of your mind, maybe. It's fascinating. There's so many interesting things and this and this and that. Don't be anxious and begin to live your life and discipline your life in a way that opens yourself up to the love of God so you're not anxious anymore. Love your enemy. Like we get to spend the rest of eternity on that one. Not like tolerate your enemy. Love them. Be patient with them. Be kind to them. Oh, gosh. This is the best possible way to live, Jesus says. Fighting oppression and dealing with the brokenness. I mean, I could go down the list of the sermon on just that. How much more do you need to intake? 
what else, Andrew, is coming your way before you follow Jesus in the small things? These become hindrances, actually. All of my mental assenting become actually hindrances. Sometimes church, for me, I don't know about for you, can actually become a hindrance to living by faith. So this morning, where do you sense God asking you to follow him? And you're punting because you're not quite sure if it's clear. Again, we can test this stuff out, right? God's like, stab the guy next to you. Not God. Where in this moment, where in your life, where in this past week, and where are you punting because, ah, that's probably not, that little nudge, that still small voice, that actually grows a lot like louder when we actually still ourselves and create disciplines that allow us to have a relationship with God, not just consume him on Sunday morning. Jesus is actually pretty simple. This is what it means to live life to the full. It takes you 11 minutes to read through the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with blessed are those who don't have it all together. And then he shows you what life looks like. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who don't get it. Blessed are those who are confused. Blessed are those who are empty. Blessed are those who realize that life is a gift, that I've come here with grace and love. Blessed are those who realize that and then begin to respond to that kind of love. So a few helpful hints. Two ways to grow in faith. One, and this may seem like a backtrack, but it is actually important. I don't want to go through it, is knowledge. Obviously, reading a book does not guarantee you will grow in true faith. But we actually need to know some things about who God is. There is a way where you grow. And then two is obedience. It's just being obedient to the words of God, to the words of love, to the way of Jesus. There are four components of saving faith that produce this sort of cycle. One is acknowledging, again, this plan of redemption, that God is renewing all things, and we are a part of that story. Two is to agree with that story. This is what I'm a part of. Your life is not ordinary. As soon as you became a Christian, your life ceased to be ordinary. And if you don't feel that way, then you need to revisit this. Literally, as soon as you have said, I want to follow Jesus as soon as you've allowed, just to said, like, I'm going to receive this grace and trust that what God has done about me, it will shift. If you continue to live in that place, shift your posture towards everything. God is doing something in the world, and he's calling you into it. And that, that mission and purpose sits above every other aspiration you have, and it informs everything else. And it causes your personal drives and passions, from art to, to working in the inner city to being a phenomenal parent. It informs all of that then because it ropes it all underneath this one beautiful true story. You, two, agree that you live in that story. I, I believe this is true. Three, that you allow the way of Jesus to touch your heart so your motives are different from everyone else. Your motives should not be from condemnation, guilt, or anxiety. It should be from love. You are loved right there in all of your hypocrisy. Congratulations. Own that. There's conversion. Own that you are loved by the God of the universe, even though in so many ways what you have done and what you continue to do and your propensities are bent away from life. And God says, I'm for you still. I've died on the cross for God so loved the whole world that he gave his son. And whoever would believe that this is true, believe in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life there starts now, the life of the ages. Four, you are going to be pushed to obey. And if you do it, you will be pushed. You will get, receive that nudge or that scream or that voice of another person. You will be pushed to obey. And if you do it, you will experience the existential reality of faith. It will produce revelation. 
It will produce clarity. It will produce such joy. It will transform you. It will touch your heart more deeply than anything else. We all know what happens when we step in to the stream of doing that, which is good, true, and beautiful, right? Those moments where we're like, oh, I am right where I am supposed to be, and this feels amazing. They know it. They're singing about it downstairs. It will transform you. It will move you. And if you don't obey, if in those moments you don't step into this cycle of joy and intimacy and following the way of Jesus, the best possible way to live, then, then it just becomes general information and considerations. I want to know that God's at work now, that obedience and risk. I want to trust that, that, that I will be swept in and experience the rich reality of what it means to be in union with Jesus. So what is he asking you this morning? What is the prompt in your heart that God's been putting on you this last week? Don't dismiss it. We come to church and sing and get swept up in grand statements. And then we ignore the little things in our life, these little bumps and pushes. Sometimes faith, when it begins, is not heroic. Simply doing the right thing, the thing that God's called us to, to trust in that moment. My guess is that at some point in this teaching, the spirit has pinged you. Something in your head has gone off and you've gone, I need to be faithful to that. Actually, God has like, has like kicked that up and pushed that to the surface. He's, he's pinged in some way. I, I realize I've, there's something I need to be faithful to. Don't come back to church next week without doing that, without being faithful and obedient to that little thing. And if you're not a Christian here, hopefully, again, like I started, you will see that we are really trying to live out what we believe. We're really trying to live out what's been revealed to us. Hopefully you see that hypocrisy offends us just like it offends you. That what disgusts you sometimes about, these people are supposed to be about the way of Jesus and yet I see this. It pisses us off too. It frustrates us to no end. And we realize that it's not just the guy out there doing it or the woman out there doing it. It's us. It's us. We have so often failed to walk in obedience. Our balance in our church of theology and praxis is so off sometimes. So off. And so I want to take a moment before we actually come to the communion table before we remember the grace of God, even in our disobedience, even in our hypocrisy, right? Because that's what sets us apart as Christians. It's not our own whatever, it's God. It's that, yeah, we're going to own that we're hypocritical. We know that. And we're struggling against that and fighting it because of God's strength. But we know who we are first, lavish sons and daughters of God. So before we get there, I want to take a moment and just meditate on this last verse in this section that Adam read. Actually, it's at the end of this whole section. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, as the body just as a utilitarian thing with no love, compassion is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's take a minute just to sit in the presence of God together. To ask God, okay, where do I need to be obedient?
Where have I failed to respond to your love? To respond to your grace? Where have I thought that I, to be a Christian is to sit on the sidelines, to be a follower of Jesus? It's to believe some stuff and defend that, defend the faith. All the while, I do not live and step into the beautiful stream that God's carved out for us to swim in. Let's take a moment just to be still to reflect. We often sing the words, give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and that your love is great. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We often sing it when we're struggling with whether God really is good or struggling with doubts, intellectual or just feeling oppressed or beat down or hurt or confused. Today I want to sing it in light of in light of this study on what true faith is, Lord, give me true faith. Give me faith to trust that your way is good. Give me the kind of faith that, Lord, leads not just to my comfort, but leads to my action, that leads to obedience, that leads to risk. May we believe that your way is the best. That I mean, I believe, God, that every person in this world is longing for something to give their life to like something that's worth dying for. I think what every person is after, every human being, is there something worth actually giving the thing that's most valuable to me, my life for? And we found it in you and history has proven it, Lord. And we've seen it in our scriptures. We've seen it in our own history. We've seen it in the lives of those around us. We've seen it two weeks ago in Libya. We've seen it. May we be people, Lord, who have that sort of faith. Faith in that story. Faith that you, Lord, are worth following. We would not live ordinary lives. We would not think that mere middle-class niceness is what you are after. So we sing.